0: Good morning. Welcome again to In-Town Presbyterian Church. It's wonderful to be in worship with you. If you're new here, and it looks like many of you are, if I haven't met you, I'd love to do so. I'd love to meet you out, um, outside after the service, just to know your name, know what brought you to In-Town this morning, maybe hear a little bit about your story and tell you a little bit about In-Town's story. Uh, If you are new here, we've been going through a series in the letter to the Colossians, and we're about midway through, a little bit farther, and we noticed last week there was a subtle shift in Paul's approach, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the letter, and he's been giving up until then this incredible instruction, theological instruction, who is God, and what is it like to know him, what is it like to be in relationship with him, what is at the true center of the world? And who are you? Who am I? He's been telling us these great truths. And then last week, we noticed a subtle shift. Though he hadn't refrained from giving instruction on ethics and how you live out this uh, reality in the church, it began to be more front and center. And this morning, we're looking at that a little bit more about what it looks like to be a community and a person with Jesus at the center. Let me read our passage for us, and then we'll pray. This is Colossians chapter 3. giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that your word would indeed dwell richly in this congregation, dwell richly in each of the individual hearts and lives that are gathered here this morning. Would you grant us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want this morning? Would you open our minds and open our hearts to see reality differently? to see ourselves from a new perspective. Father, I pray that the gospel of Christ, that which has set us free, that which is the guarantee of peace, would dwell richly in us. Wherever we are finding ourselves this morning on the spiritual spectrum, whether we are still on a journey to Christ, whether we are skeptical, whether we have been on the journey many years, I pray that we would each encounter Jesus. We would each encounter His grace and mercy Through this worship service and through particularly uh, the teaching now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I gave what I thought was a great illustration, and then I totally blew the punchline. It was from Toy Story. And Buzz Lightyear crash lands on a strange planet, which we all know is, what, Andy's room. And he's constantly calling back to Star Command. And he's trying to get his spaceship fixed so he can get back on duty. But Woody knows what's really true. Woody knows the real reality behind their little life in this room. And one of the plot elements that runs throughout the movie up until near the end is Woody trying to convince Buzz of his real identity. And at some point in the movie, Woody has just had enough. And he grabs Buzz and says, "'You are a toy.'" You are a toy. And finally, Buzz relents. And after moping around for a little while, despondent because he's not really a space ranger, but simply a toy, he fully takes on this new identity. He sees his purpose. He finally understands and embodies who he really is, his new identity, which is actually his true identity. Now, the last time I shared this, I built it up I got all the details right, and then I said, you are not a toy. And my family over here is like, no, he is, he is a toy. But in our passage, Paul is sharing your true identity if you're a Christian. He is saying all of these false ways that you've lived before, all of these false identities and false ideologies that you've defined yourself by, no longer defined you. You are a Christian. You are in him. Christ is your center. And he begins to tell us and expound upon what that would look like in a community if everyone thought that way. If everyone saw themselves by that new reality, here's what it would look like. But he's also extraordinarily realistic because he doesn't say that insofar as the gospel takes hold, once you become a Christian, that there will be, therefore, no conflict. There will be no grievances anymore. No. No. That's not what he says at all. Instead, forgive grievances. Instead, love in the face of offense. You see, the way that you see that the gospel is taking shape in a community is not in the cessation of conflict. It's how conflict is responded to and what the relationship looks like on the other side. Paul is teaching us about a community which exists on the basis of a new reality, A new identity. And we're going to talk this morning just about two things. What that looks like in practice in a new community and then how you get it. How does it flourish? How do you cultivate that in your own individual lives and in a church? So first of all, what does it look like? Well, if you're a Christian, as we said, your identity has changed. As we said last week, you have been made a totally new person. But it takes some time to get used to. Just as Buzz had his identity, he finally came to grips with it. It took him a while in the movie to kind of figure out how to live in that new identity, that he was now Andy's toy. He served a new master. It wasn't Star Command, but Andy. And as we work out this new identity in community, we'll have a great potential for becoming disillusioned because we don't see things happening as quickly. We get disillusioned because someone over here is not living out their true identity, and it hurts us. We have, we have a great potential for conflict. We have great potential for really hurting one another if we live closely together. So if we run the risk of hurting others or being hurt, we just say, I won't go there. I'm not going to engage deep enough in order to be hurt or to hurt someone else. We avoid meaningful relationships or just keep a select few, the safe people. We keep things on the surface and move to the most superficial manner of relating to each other. If we think, well, I'm going to get hurt if I open myself up in this community, we say, well, I'll just avoid that. Or we engage, but we leave wreckage behind because we're rude, overbearing, domineering, slow to forgive, slow to change, slow to accept responsibility. We know we're lacking something internally. The peace of Christ hasn't fully settled in our life, and so we go through community, we go through life trying to grab, trying to extract things from other people to fill up our own emptiness. Either we hide or we tear one another to pieces. But neither of these is an option. We're not allowed, we can't read this passage and then hide from one another, hide from real genuine engaging relationships, nor can we be willing to tear other people apart or to allow someone else in the midst of the community to do that. These commands are not simply to individual persons, but to a community made up of individual persons. They can't be applied. They can't be understood. They can't be embodied in a solitary life. They can only be embodied inside of an engaged, committed community. Now, last week, we read that those who are in Christ have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge, the image of its creator. Here, there is no Gentile, there is no Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Whatever your status or background was, however you built your identity before, However you categorize others based upon ethnicity, based upon socioeconomic status or any other boundary, it's all done away with because Christ is all. Your identity is him. Your fundamental identity is that you have been set free by the gospel, that you have been forgiven, that you have received his mercy. His peace is the fundamental aspect of your identity now. He says, instead of those things, instead of those old boundary markers, you are what? You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. That that's your new identity in spite of your great sin, in spite of all the ways that you have thrown off God's rule and walked away from him. Out of his great storehouse of love, he has come and rescued you. He has put his name upon you. He has put his new identity upon you. You are holy and dearly loved if you are in him. That is the fundamental aspect of your new identity. Therefore, Paul says, put on, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. If that's your new identity, then these things will begin to well up in your life and well up in a community that is based upon that identity. It's almost inevitable. It will be slow at times, but no one can base their life, no one can center their entire purpose and identity on the gospel, on Jesus, and not see these things begin to crop up in their lives. This new identity is given immediately by Jesus, but then it has to be lived out. It has to be practiced. It has to be put into place. Now, when you read this passage in the Greek, This part here, you realize that our modern translations leave out a particular word. And you understand why when you read it in the Greek or you read it in the old King James because it's a little bit strange and it would throw off the casual reader. But when you understand what it means, there's a deeper understanding here. In the King James, it says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, and long suffering, our past, our translation doesn't have bowels. What is bowels? What could that possibly mean? Well, it's used elsewhere in the New Testament in a rather gruesome way in regards to Judas's death. And in Acts one, it says, "With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field there, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. His bowels." Spilled out. It's kind of kinda gruesome and gross. But what is Luke, the writer of Acts, trying to tell us there? That Judas betrays Jesus, and by his actions he's revealing his true identity. He's taking off his mask and demonstrating what his real commitments are. Though he professed faith in Jesus along the way, now his true self is being revealed. What is inside is coming out both literally and figuratively. Here Paul uses the very same word, put on bowels of mercy. Let your inner condition, your new identity spring forth. Let the fact that the gospel is now at the center of your life be demonstrated in the way that you live. Put on bowels of mercy. What does this look like? It means that in the midst of a broken but healing community, that there will be compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience towards offenders, towards sinners, towards those like the woman in our gospel reading, towards the outsider, that there will be compassion. Towards those who hurt you deeply, there will be gentleness and patience. Then he gives further explanation. He elaborates on and makes our task even all the more difficult. Forgive. Verse 13, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against some. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Just as Jesus does in the Lord's Prayer, Paul wants us to see how absurd it is for us to say, I'm not willing to forgive, in light of the fact that if you're a Christian, you have been forgiven everything. It's absurd for us to hold things over other people's heads when Jesus no longer holds anything over yours. When a Christian is unwilling to forgive, they're not simply breaking the rules, but they're speaking against, they're betraying their fundamental identity. They're not really understanding who Jesus has made them to be. We should begin to ask ourselves if we see a long-standing unwillingness, a practice of unforgiveness of a lack of gentleness, a lack of humility, a lack of patience with others. If this is a trend in our lives, we should ask ourselves, do I really understand Jesus' forgiveness? Do I really understand what Jesus has done on my behalf? Do I get the gospel? Just as our gospel reading, those who have been forgiven much forgive much. But if you see yourself as that Pharisee, if you've been forgiven just a little bit, then you're not in the position, you're not able, you're not capable of forgiving others much. You have to see yourself as that sinful woman whose Jesus is their only hope, not their record, not their righteousness, not their merit, but only Jesus, only his mercy. Then, if you live out that reality, forgiveness becomes much more possible, much more of a practice. In other words, if there are bowels of rage, of anger, of malice, of dishonesty. What is inside is simply springing forth. How you really see life, how you really see yourself, how you really see God is springing forth. What's inside is being produced. You're not simply breaking the rules. You're living out of what is ruling your life. You're living out of an identity of self-rule, of control, of fear of others and fear of the future. Now, what are some practical reasons that we don't forgive? Even if we get the gospel somewhat, if we know we're supposed to forgive, why do we not? Well, there's a couple of reasons. One, we may say, well, they haven't been sorry enough. They haven't apologized. They haven't done what they need to do to make things right. But turn that around back on yourself. Think about that as you relate to Jesus. Have you been sorry enough for your sin? Have you been sorry enough for everything that Jesus has forgiven you of? They haven't been sorry enough. Secondly, if I forgive them, if I go easy on them, if I don't show them my disapproval of their actions, then they'll just repeat it. I need to withhold forgiveness so they'll learn their lesson. But we're showing, if this is our rationale for not forgiving, a fundamental misunderstanding of the gospel itself and of the motivation for spiritual change, that we think that in order for someone to get better, that we have to hold out punishment. We have to hold out consequences, that that's the fundamental way that someone changes. And, of course, there's consequences to our sin. There's consequences to the way that we live our lives. But Paul tells us elsewhere in Romans that apart from grace... That in simply enforcing the rules only intensifies our desire for breaking them. Our desire to sin. Mark Twain illustrates this perfectly in his great book, Tom Sawyer. It says Tom joined the new order of cadets of temperance. Being attracted by the showy character of their regalia, he promised to abstain from smoking, chewing, and profanity as long as he remained a member. Now he found out a new thing, namely, that to promise not to do, do a thing is the surest way in the world to make a body want to go and do that very thing. Tom soon found himself tormented with a desire to drink and swear. A page later, though, Twain gives us a real understanding, an approximate illustration of how the gospel's freedom is, or how the gospel frees us from legalism and frees us from the desire to sin. He says that Tom handed in his resignation at once. Tom was a free boy again. However, there was something in that. He could drink and swear now, but found to his surprise that he did not want to. The simple fact that he could took the desire and the charm away from it. Friends, if your primary motivation for spiritual change or for forgiving someone is to avoid consequences is to avoid punishment, to keep God happy, then you're going to be very less inclined, very little inclined to do so. If your motivation instead is forgive because you have been forgiven, because this little measly offense is nothing in comparison to what Jesus has forgiven you of, then you'll be ready. Then you can begin. Thirdly, third reason why we don't forgive, it hurts forgiveness hurts. Whenever there's an offense, an insult, a debt is created. How do we talk about vengeance? What are some of the phrases that we use? We talk about getting even. We talk about settling the score. We talk about paying them back. It's all banking. It's all mathematics language. A real debt is created when there is an offense. When there is a sin against someone, there is a debt something has been extracted, something has been withdrawn from the health of that relationship. Now, when you forgive, you're choosing to pay down that debt, to pay it off on behalf of someone, and that hurts. It hurts because you'd rather them pay it. You'd rather the score be settled by them paying down the debt, and that's why forgiveness is hard, because it hurts You're choosing to absorb the debt yourself instead of enforcing someone else to pay it down. The debt doesn't just go away. You can pay it or you can choose to make them pay it. Now, how? How is this true? How do we choose to pay the debt instead of making someone else pay it? Well, instead of looking for opportunities to insult them, as the consequence for their sin against you, to tear them down and to make fun of them, you forego it. You don't do it. And that hurts, but it begins to pay down the debt. Instead of taking an opportunity to insult them or tear them down, you perform acts of kindness and service on their behalf or towards them. Ouch. That really does hurt. And that's when you know the debt is being paid down when you're tempted to wish for their misfortune, when you're tempted to think less of them or be suspicious of their motivations or always hold them in contempt and distrust them forever. Instead, you pray for them. You ask God to bless them. You ask God to help them. You ask God to be good to them. That really hurts. It hurts to do that because you're paying down a debt. You're choosing to take the debt and put it on yourself instead of making the other person pay. You pay the debts created by their sin, and you take the pain on yourself. So, of course, forgiveness hurts. There are a number of reasons that we don't forgive, but when you understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done on your behalf, none of them are valid. All of them are turned upside down. Now, I mentioned that Paul is very realistic because there are real debts. There are real wounds that happen even inside of Christian community. Of course they do because we're all, even though receiving a new identity, receiving the message of salvation, even though being made new, there's still this old person that comes into play. There's still this old man, old woman that wants their way. And so, of course, we're going to have conflict and Paul is very realistic. His teaching on forgiveness doesn't involve simply saying, get over it, or if you were a better Christian, this wouldn't bother you so much. The fact that forgiveness is needed implies that there's a real hurt, that some wounds may take years to truly, truly heal, or they may be with you the rest of their life, rest of your life. But forgiveness allows those wounds at least begin to heal that they no longer have power over you. They no longer hold sway in your life. They allow the wounds to at least scar over so that you can begin to move on with life, that that relationship no longer has to be eternally defined by that one offense. But forgiveness is also a habitual thing. It's a decision that you make, but it's also a process. It's an event and a process You must deliberately choose to live in forgiveness. And to be be a forgiving person, you ultimately need to be a loving person. He says in verse 14, And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Now, we spent a good bit of time defining forgiveness because it's misunderstood. It's a word that we pass over, and so is love. We think of them often both in terms of the presence or the absence of an emotion. Forgiveness is the lack of anger, and love is the presence of affection. It's not true. It can be true, and ideally it's true, but essentially each has to do with the deliberate activity, a deliberate decision towards the other person rather than how you feel about them in the moment. It involves treating other people, proactively with compassion, humility, gentleness, kindness, and patience. That's what forgiveness and love is. It's not simply having a rosy feeling about someone. It's not simply having an affection or a lack of anger. It's choosing to act in a certain way. And as you do that, then hopefully and ideally that affection does present itself. Have you ever noticed when you serve someone, you actually begin to love them and to like them more, it happens. It happens in childhood. What can a child do for you as a parent? Nothing. They may smile and giggle, but they do a lot of other stuff that's very inconvenient. But as you serve them, you love them. You begin to have this affection for them. You can't get enough of them. That's what service does. That's what being compassionate towards someone, that's what forgiving someone does. It draws you to love them, to have affection for them. But neither of those is based primarily or fundamentally on the presence or the absence of an emotion. Love binds all, he says. He's been using this metaphor of clothing, of putting off one set of clothes for another set of clothes, putting off the old person for the new. And here love, he is saying, is the outer garment, It's the overcoat. It's the thing that puts it all together. You've heard someone say about an outfit, that belt, that overcoat really ties the whole thing together. That rug really ties the whole room together. It holds it all together. Or if you will, the piece that brings it all together is love. It's the overcoat. We will be prone to hide or to tear one another to pieces, but instead clothe yourself with love. It's the outward adornment. Of what's happened within. It's the external manifestation of what Jesus has done in your heart internally. Love is the overcoat. Love is the sign that you really are a forgiven person, that really, you really do see yourself as that sinful woman kissing Jesus' feet. Love is the symbol of that. It's the signifier. It's the recognition of what's happened within you. Now, what is it? And then, how do you get it? How do you get it? It's great to talk about these things. It's great to say that we should be forgiving people, that we should love in the face of offense. But how? How do you do it when everything inside you screams, I hate this other person, and I'll do anything to make them pay? You need the peace of Christ, and you need the word of Christ. Two things as we close. First of all, peace, verse 15. the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. There's a command, a to-do here, if you will, but it's not like those that we're accustomed to. He says, let the peace rule. Allow the peace to come in. And the word for rule here is umpire or arbitrate or hold sway. Let the peace of Christ arbitrate in your heart. When you've been deeply hurt, and you're tempted to let it dominate you, when you're immobilized by a hurt or an offense, let the peace of Christ arbitrate that relationship. Let it umpire that situation. Let it mediate between the two parties, both literally and figuratively. When there's two parties and there's an offense, let the peace of Christ umpire that relationship. Let his peace hold sway And let it arbitrate between the two poles of your heart, one which wants to extricate every bit of pain from that other person and the part of your heart that says, I know I should forgive them. Let the peace of Christ umpire that. Let the peace of Christ hold sway. That's what he's saying. Why do we not forgive? Because we're not at peace ourselves. Instead of living out of the new identity, having received everything by grace, eternal life for free, We're still settling scores. We're still getting even. We're still extracting things we need from other people because peace does not reside in our hearts. We're trying to fill it up with all we can get from other people. That's why we don't forgive. We're still trying to please God and to pay him back for what he's done. We say, thanks for the salvation. Now let me pay you back. Now let me offer Something in return. And so, no way we're giving something away. No way we're going to offer forgiveness and love because we are still unsettled. We are still lacking peace ourselves. And Paul is saying that if you're a Christian, letting this peace rule your heart now comes naturally because it's part of your new identity. But it still takes great exertion, it still takes effort, it takes swimming. It's one of the things that none of us do naturally. I've seen the babies that are in the water with their eyes open and swimming underneath, but they're they're just holding their breath. They're not really swimming. If there's not a mom or dad there, they're not going to make it. It's one thing we all have to to learn to do. We have the ability in our bones and our muscles and our brains, but we have to learn to do it. It doesn't come naturally to us any more than... A fish comes naturally to a fish being on land. But when a child is five or six with a few lessons, you can toss them into the pool and they can paddle around and survive and do just fine. They've learned to do something. They had the innate ability, but they had to be trained. They had to be taught. They had to see something else. But competitive swimmers, they go beyond that. They spend hundreds and hundreds of hours learning not just simply to stay afloat, but to swim well and to swim fast. It's an incredibly complex interplay of neurons and muscle memory and your muscles itself and an act of will and even the unconscious. And it takes incredible exertion. A competitive swimmer swimming at their peak is exerting themselves greatly. But yet that swimmer feels at home in the pool. They feel as at home in the pool as a track star does running on the track, it takes great effort, but it 's a peaceful, sublime type of activity. Letting the peace of God rule in your hearts takes great effort, yet it does become more and more natural to you as you begin to practice it. as you begin to forgive other people, as you begin to love people in spite of offense, Jesus shows up and you begin to understand what his peace peace brings to that relationship. It becomes more and more natural as you begin to forgive. Do you want to let the peace of Christ rule in your heart? Then let it be all that you have. Choose to forgive, choose to love, choose to be compassionate, and see if Jesus will show up in that moment with his peace and not something that you've concocted. We can memorize verses on peace. We can read stories about people who seem to live a peaceful lives, and those things are helpful. But until you have to rely on it, until it's all that you have, you'll never really understand it. It won't rule your heart. It won't arbitrate situations for you. It will be a nice idea, but it won't umpire these situations. A new swimmer has to choose to get into the pool. And a new Christian, and even those of us who have been Christians for a long, time, a long time, have to choose to forgive, choose to love, choose to be humble, to give up control of the debt, to experience Jesus showing up. Let the peace of Jesus, let His gospel rule your hearts, arbitrate your relationships, and then finally, Let the message of Christ or the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs in the spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts and let the word of Christ, the message of Christ dwell with you richly. We've been talking a lot in personal terms, but we should remember again that Paul's writing to a community, writing to a group of people. He's talking about peace that reigns in a community when Jesus and his peace are at the center. Let the peace rule in your hearts, plural. Let the word of Christ dwell within you as a body. He says, teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns as you gather together Let the word of God dwell richly. Let it illuminate you by receiving it from others and giving it away. If the body of a swimmer is exerting themselves greatly, they are breathing every few strokes because they're essentially underwater and they won't survive without breathing. A community experiencing peace takes great exertion and it takes deliberate effort for peace to rule. And the teaching and admonishing is the breathing. It's the inhaling and the exhaling. It's the reminding and the receiving of the gospel, of the message of Christ, that though you walked away from him, though you were a sinner, you have been set free forever. Though you were in rebellion against Jesus and against God and his rule in your life, he said, I want to have you and I will do anything that it takes being reminded and reminding others, receiving and giving that message of Christ is essential to letting the peace rule in your hearts in order to be a loving and forgiving person. The word of Christ, the gospel, is the only thing that will keep peace alive. We have to keep going back to it over and over, week in and week out. And if you're new here, I'll give something away. What you're hearing this morning is exactly the same thing you'll hear next week and the week after, because this is what we're about, and this is what Jesus is about. Sure, there are new ways to say it, and there's new things that we can find in Scripture, but we're always going to go back to the peace, the message of Christ, that though you are a sinner, he can set you free. The creator of the world loved his creation so much. That though it went astray, though it threw off his rule and authority at the cost of his only son, he redeems it. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there can be true and lasting peace that you can have God for free. And therefore, you can set others free. You can be at peace enough in your own heart that you can allow his peace to arbitrate on your behalf and on others' behalf in relationship. Friends, let this peace arbitrate your life this week. Let the message of Christ dwell richly in your relationships, in your conversations with one another. And if you're here looking in from the outside, not quite sure, keep investigating. Look at what it might, imagine what it might look like to experience peace with God, with your Creator, with the only one who controls the future, that you could be at peace with Him. Let's pray. Father, we pray that this peace would arbitrate our relationships here at InTown, that it would direct us, that it would guide us, that it would umpire our own hearts. Lord, would you draw us deeper into the message of Christ, that we would understand it, that we would share it with one another, that we would give it freely away. Lord, I pray that you would do a great work this morning even of letting us understand that Your peace can rule our hearts, and would it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.